In the aftermath of Dale Earnhardt's death at Daytona in 2001, NASCAR decided they had to do something to drastically change their record on safety in their race cars. But instead of just mandating a few new safety parameters and calling it a day, NASCAR decided to change the game. Or more specifically, the car. What if they designed a brand new vehicle from the ground up, built around safety as the number one priority? No doubt it was a bold move, one that a lot of team owners would question. Is this car actually safer? I'm a smaller team, can you make this car more competitive for me? And of course, the question on everybody's mind, how expensive is all of this going to be? Meanwhile, the fans had questions too. Primarily, why does it look so ugly? Today on Stagger, we're going to explore how NASCAR answered all those questions as we pick apart the car of tomorrow. Turns of loose coming into the front stretch. Tommy changed the entire throttle system last night, the night before a race. But, oh, he can't do that. But we want to thank you tonight for these mighty machines that you brought before. Welcome to Stagger, where we explore motorsports heroes, legends, and myths. I'm J.D. Smith, and along with my brother Derek Smith, we want to thank you for joining us on this journey through motorsports history. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you find yourself enjoying it. And also, you might want to go check out part one of this series if you missed it last week. We talked about NASCAR's very first attempts at keeping the drivers safe in 2000 and the resistance that came from the drivers to those measures. Also today, we're branching out a little bit into a new way of doing this podcast. For just this week, we're adding a third host, and he's got a pretty good resume. He's a huge NASCAR fan as well. He is currently a driver in the Arkham Menard Series East for Max Siegel and Rev Racing as part of the NASCAR Drive for Diversity Driver Development Program Class of 2021. He's also competing in the NASCAR Advanced Auto Parts Weekly Series. He is a prominent iRacer, and he just won his first late model race at Greenville Pick and Speedway in South Carolina last year. His name is Raja Karuth. And before you do anything else, if you're not already, follow him on Twitter at Raja, R-A-J-A-H, Karuth, C-A-R-U-T-H, with an underscore. Raja Karuth underscore on Twitter. That's how you follow the man with car literally in his name. Raja, did I miss anything else? I also, I'm a sim racer. I, I represent Space Station Gaming on iRacing and Twitch. Um, I go to Winston-Salem State University. I'm a sophomore. And that's really it. I'm 19. I'm, I'm pretty boring outside of race car stuff. <laughs> I don't that's do all right. Much. We are too. That's why we do a motorsports history podcast because that's, that's the most exciting thing we got going nice. on. So. All right, so Raja, question. I usually ask Derek this question, but I'll ask you instead, since you're our guest of honor today. What do you think of when I say the phrase "car of tomorrow"? I think about 2009 at Texas when Jimmy Johnson wrecked with Sam Horn. This is like such a weird, weird memory. No, but it's Jimmy not weird at all. It's perfect. <laughs> this is exactly like, why we ask these questions. I love it. Like and he wrecked with Sam Hornish and then Chad and all them guys put together the car, the cobalt car and it had like a black nose on it. That's like etched in my brain for whatever reason. Were you a fan of the car of tomorrow? I did. Like in my defense, I was only like seven. I, well, <laughs> when it the year when it was part time, I was five. So I didn't have like a concept really of a lot of everything. So it was just, oh, it looks very cool. And that's like what I grew up like seeing on TV. I loved it for that purpose. And like, obviously now I'm older, I see, I guess the 
the why people did or didn't. But I mean, overall, I, I, I loved watching it growing up. There are a lot of cool paint schemes. The wing was cool. What was annoying though is like you get those, I would get the uh, circle track die cast from like Target or whatever. Yeah. But I will always like break the wings off. So, and especially <laughs> like the little, like the winglets too. So at first, the one winglet would be off, then two, then it'd just be a blade, and then it'd just be without a spoiler at all. Was that on purpose or just that's just because you were because you were playing with them yeah right just playing with them yeah. yeah my memory of the car of tomorrow is obviously the wing first thing you you get at but i also remember kyle bush winning in the car and saying it was something along the lines of it was a piece of crap i just know the drivers did not like it a lot of them didn't but i remember that the cars looked different the splitter with the with the with the, the brackets the brackets in the front yeah and how those things like those would get bent up if some guy like you know punches the car in front of them and that would mess up the the splitter and it'd start to drag and then they'd you know a tire'd go down so it was like almost like this piece of weird art from the mid two thousands that you know you had to take care of and nurse it to the finish line but in other ways they were tanks too because they if they lined up correctly they just smash into the person in front of them because this is the first time those cars didn't have that super low nose they were more squared up so you could get those uh those runs at the super speedways and knock a guy you know five car links in front of you just by pounding him in the back stretch into three that's that's very true so this was a car that you initially fell in love with do you still now look back on it and go that's a cool looking car or, or has your taste changed at all on that or where do you come down hasn't changed a bit like it, it's synonymous with i guess my earliest memories of watching nascar it's weird because like I guess now I kind of understand everything a little bit better, specifically with the racing. And now I kind of see, oh, I, now I kind of get why people hated it from a driver's perspective versus from a and a, the fans' perspective about it and whatnot. And I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense. But it's still in my heart as as one of the OGs. I love to make some of my industry friends feel very old and say, oh, <laughs> hey, you guys were this old when this happened? Well, guess what? I was like six. <laughs> I yeah. Was oh, I don't I'm sure they love that. That that's <laughs> great. You should keep doing that. That's awesome. I say that as a fellow old. Like I I appreciate that because like no, I would have done that when I was your age. So I totally get that. That's great. <laughs> now I know you're in school. So do you? I hate to do this to you. Do you mind having a little brief history lesson on the generations of cars? I had the encyclopedia and stuff of like, and it it like it goes by decade and it shows like each car through decades. So. I say I remember like I'm always alive, but I can I know like all right, two thousands that was like Gen five and like how kind of that changed and then how the snouts got longer and stuff like that and then the nineties with like the Lumina and like how those were still kind of boxy, which had evolved from the eighties one, which were more boxy from the seventies and so on. Yeah, but it it, give it me is the it give is me the a, it is a big evolution, and I'll I I didn't know a lot of this stuff either until I started researching it. So we'll dive in Generation One, which really is not a thing. Those were just all the stock cars prior to 1966, because prior to 1966, you just brought whatever you had, you brought it to the racetrack, you raced it. That was that. You drove but, it to the racetrack. You drove it home. Yeah. You, put the you drove to the grocery there, store with your number store. on it. It's a very right. interesting time. <laughs> Um, but that would have been like Big Bill France when he raced, when he started NASCAR. That That's what he, Ned Jarrett, Fireball Roberts, Fred Lorenzen, Leroy Yarborough. That's that's the generation you think of. That's the pre-fabricated you know fabricated race cars. 1966, Holman Moody, Banjo Matthews, and Hutchinson Pagan, they're the ones who came up with like actually building 
purpose-built race cars that just happened to look like stock cars you could get at the dealer. But these were built from the ground up. They were constructed with, you know, the more familiar setup where we are now, where there's a roll cage to some degree. Was this with Ford? This was all the makes. All the makes and models did this, yes. But, like, Holman Moody was one of them. Banjo Matthews. Uh, those were some of the guys who kind of pioneered how to build these cars. But this was a decision by NASCAR to say, now, instead of taking a car from the showroom and modifying it, you're building a chassis in your shop and then putting a body kit on it that makes it look like, I don't know, whatever car they were running at the time, Ford Torino. But it's not a Ford Torino. It's nothing like the car you can get in the dealership other than the outside kind of looks like it. So that right. was the first big change was 1966. So Richard Petty, David Pearson, Cale Yarborough, Wendell Scott. If you think of drivers in that era, that's what you're thinking of. The... Richard Petty, 67 Belvedere that he drove to 10 straight wins and 27 out of 49 in 1967. That was a Gen 2 car, for lack of a better term. That's the first generation of purpose-built race cars in NASCAR. 1981, they changed to the Gen 3, which was a reduced wheelbase, 110 inches. Um, that would be because cars were getting smaller in the real world. So NASCAR said, well, we should stop making these giant race cars that don't look anything like the cars now so that would be the thunderbird the bill elliott set the record in at talladega the earliest and most of his big wins for dale earnhardt not most most of his big wins but most of the time where he was dominating and winning championships that was gen 3 cars ernie urban in a chevy lumina for morgan mcclure winning at daytona that's that was a gen 3 car the kodak car yeah yeah yep that's right oh, that's a um, good paint scheme Oh yeah, great. And that was that was mostly pre-restrictor plate, although they started putting restrictor plates in late in that era. Bill Elliott set that record and I think was at 87 I want to say when he set the record. So, it was right after that they started using the restrictor plates because of terrible wreck at Talladega. Anyway, so that was Gen 3. Gen 4 is the car that I think most people when they think NASCAR, they think of. This was 1992 when they started putting this in. The nickname for this car was the Twisted Sister. And that was because these cars were just, they were able to be kind of manipulated. The bodies were used, uh, offset a little bit. This this is Jeff Gordon in a Monte Carlo, Dale Earnhardt, you know, in a, you know, black number three when he won at Daytona. That's, that's what you're thinking of when you think early Gen 4. But also, if you're thinking of Cousin Carl, you know, Carl Edwards and Jimmy Johnson slamming doors at Atlanta, that was a Gen 4 car. Ricky Craven, right? When he won Ricky at Craven, Kurt Bush at, at Kurt Bush at Darlington. Yep. That that's yep. a Gen Four car too. So that's the kind of end of that. But that tells you how wide of a a run that had from '92 mm. basically up until we got the car of tomorrow. Now, Roger, do you know why they wanted to go to the car of tomorrow? Do you what do you know of that history, or do you know? So I think it was more on the crux of safety, I believe, because you know people like weren't getting killed anymore, but people were still getting hurt and. You know, there there weren't some of the cars down back then for like they are now. So I think that was more of a change of like, all right, doing a better job to to distribute energy or absorb energy and, and I guess crush when they wreck and really things to to make them more safer. Yeah, because I believe around the same time, that's when safer barriers like really started getting implemented. You are like, you are 100 percent right. Yes. So. They say with the 3,400-pound uh, stock car that was the Gen 4 car, 
traveling at 200 miles an hour, it had the same kinetic energy inside the car, meaning when it hits the wall, the explosive nature of, of that is the same as 2.2 pounds of dynamite from a physics what? standpoint. <laughs> so oh. like when a car hits the wall at that speed, you might as well just light a stick of dynamite in the car. That's the effect it can have on the car itself and there's a person in there and there's a yeah. person in there right the gen 4 cars one of the things that they had a major drawback for was they did not have good crush pan panels they were very rigid and that's a lot of the you know team owners and everything and and the mechanics and everybody else they liked that because you could kind of beat and bang on each other in these cars you could even hit the wall and then bring it in wrench on it a little bit and pull everything pull the sheet metal out or the fiberglass and you could go back out and race. Remember Dale Earnhardt had that one where he has that whole interview where he talked about, I got in the ambulance, got back out of the ambulance because his car flipped over, but he realized, well, it rolled over a bunch of times, but it still ran. <laughs> and he literally got back in the car and finished the race. It was just like a couple laps, I think, under caution or something. Right. But he got back in a car that was otherwise pretty damaged. From a safety standpoint, it didn't disperse that energy very mm. well. So you're right. It actually carved tomorrow. That was why they went to that in, in part. But of course, yes, one of the main reasons they did that was because sadly of Dale Earnhardt's passing uh, in 2001 at the Daytona 500. In our last episode, Raja, we talked about how it wasn't just that. There was Adam Petty, Kenny Irwin Jr., Tony Roper. They had a lot of sadly deaths occur in 2000 and 2001. And that was where NASCAR said, all right, we've got to do better. The car of tomorrow was the result of all the different research they tried to do. They they did put this car out. It was introduced at uh, in, at Bristol in 2007. There were a lot of safety improvements that they did. They actually, believe it or not, made the car heavier because the goal was to make it be safer and more sturdy for the driver, but not as rigid in the front and back so that it could actually disperse the energy. The cockpit was made taller by two inches and wider by four inches. The driver was pushed more towards the center of the car, which is more where you sit now in a race car than where in the old cars they did, to give a little more room between the doors so there's more, hopefully, area for car to get hit in the side and not hurt the mm. driver. Fuel cell was trimmed down to 17 gallons for fuel from 22 gallons. The fuel cell walls were thicker. And I, I thought it would be good, real quick, before we move on, I just wanted to see, Roger, have you ever heard of or seen a, a what's called a banjo seat? I want to send this to you. This is because they improved the seats too. I'm going to put this in our in our chat. So when you see this, I want you to think about this seat. Think about the seat that you drive in today. That is the seat. <laughs> that seat is what that was from Dale Earnhardt's car. Just like a, a car, a seat he had in like the mid '90s. Now later in his career, he did switch to a full containment seat, but not less than ten years before they switched to the car of tomorrow these banjo seats were still being used. What do you think of that when you see that picture of a seat? <laughs> uh, um, that looks like a, like from rental carts, man. Um, yeah, <laughs> it does. Geez. It's like a GoPro, right? This is yeah, the seat that exactly. NASCAR ran primarily probably till the mid-90s. And then people said, hey, maybe we should put like an arm restraint here or a head restraint <laughs> here and try to keep ourselves tucked in a little bit better than... Than what we were so i just what would you think if you had to get in a car and they're like all right hey you're gonna run a late model race tonight and sorry you've been never been in this car before but here's the seat we've got for you and it was one of those banjo matthews designed seats from you know 30 years ago i think i still race man like <laughs> well that's true you're it, a racer that's right it'd be probably very very ill-advised of me to do so but yeah. 
I, I think that I would um I would like to, to still race because yeah. to be completely honest, like if you're not like strapped in, strapped in, like you can like kind of look around and stuff so you don't necessarily have to use a, a spotter you could kind of just like glance well you know over. that's that is that is one of the primary reasons why some drivers did not want to switch from it was because they felt like i can't look around and see what i'm doing and spotters were not as prevalent back then um obviously now they're mandated you have to have them anytime you're on the track but that only again became happened because of different accidents and things like that so yeah it you're going to probably not be shocked by this, but there were quite a few drivers who were very hesitant to make the changes that NASCAR was recommending, like Hans device or full face helmets. The car of tomorrow was their solution. I mean, everyone had that point by, by that point they had mandated some of that stuff, but that was NASCAR saying, here's the next step guys. Also, they wanted the racing to be better. They thought it, they could make it a little more competitive. So that was also what motivated them to switch to the car of tomorrow. Derek, I think you brought up in 2007, Kyle Busch. Yeah said that the car sucked he <laughs> said that after their inaugural race at bristol which he won <laughs> he was driving the number five hendrick car uh kellogg's, kellogg's. yeah the yes. kellogg's car baby absolutely that's right the blue and yellow right little red yeah little red so they they started they introduced the car in 2007 and it ran for 16 races it was set to go full-time in 2009 but they actually moved that up to 2008 they just figured it's going to cost so much money. These teams don't want to make this investment twice, so let's just switch over in 2008. Kyle Busch, like I said, won that race, got out of the car and said, yeah, but I, I hate these things. They suck <laughs> in victory lane. And they're like, well, but you won the race. Aha! And he's like, yeah, they suck. Probably at the time, and I hate to say this to you, Raja, one of the more popular things he's ever said in his career because uh, this will become a theme throughout today, but uh, this car was not popular with most NASCAR <laughs> fans. They did not like it. For what it's worth, that Kyle Busch car, Hendrick does, and uh, part of Rick Hendrick's dealerships, they sell some of their old race cars. Not cheap, but if Not you'd like cheap. to, if you'd like to buy the inaugural Car of Tomorrow race winner that Kyle Busch said sucked, they are selling it at Hendrick Motorsports Certified which is a real website. <laughs> wow! But you can go there and read all about it. And uh, I'll send you that link too, Raj, if you want to check it out. I'm sure you're a race car driver. I'm sure it's in the budget. It's, uh, let us know what it's like. I'm sure it must be nice to just, you know, roll up. In the <laughs> budget? Do you want to know how much money I have in my bank account right now? <laughs> I'm guessing I'm guessing um, it's more of diecast budget than uh, certified race car. But there's a link to the uh, Hendrick Motorsports Certified Race Cars website just, if you want to take a look. Just keep that in your back pocket so if you ever do get a chance to get a contract with Hendrick. Just have that be in a rider. Put that in the rider, yeah. You need, a, you need a, an original car I tomorrow. will sign with you only Upon if I get this car. Win. Upon my first win, I need an official car tomorrow. That's great. There you go. <laughs> yeah, they do that stuff. Sure. Alex I think Bowman awesome. got like a Corvette or something like that. So I, I think, you know, make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> it doesn't have a price on it. Oh, well. Yeah. Well, you can call. You've got connections, <laughs> man. You're in the NASCAR world. Go call them up. See what they want. Let us know, too. Maybe we'll all go. We'll all chip in. Yeah. How about that? We'll Deal. Yeah. <laughs> Got him. I'll make it street legal so I can just drive around. Oh, oh dude, dude, that'd be great. Man, if I I don't know, I don't know if you go out to eat much, but if I was ever at a fast food, I go out to eat all the time. If I like fast food, if I went to a fast food place and saw that car in line behind me, I'm just like I'm parking and waiting for that car and I'm just going to tail it for a while cuz I want to see where it's going cuz that's <laughs> Yeah, you would have a lot of people following you around, do, no do doubt. You, okay, speaking of that, Raja, do you ever recall as a kid like this happened with Dale Senior, 
Dale Jr. I think if there's maybe Tony Stewart with the 20 Home Depot car, people would use like the Chevy Luna. They would get that, wrap it, paint it, whatever, and they would have like a car that's totally street legal, doesn't really look like a NASCAR other than the paint job. But I would see that around town like a lot growing up. Like, oh, there's that Chevy number eight with the racing stripes down the side with the red and black scheme. There's number eight they stuck on the door. Not in D.C. Like whenever I would like when I went to Pocono for the first time a couple of years ago, Daytona or or here, like I'll never forget 2018 came down for the all-star race. And we're going down 85, and no joke, I think I still have the pictures of it. This dude is driving down 85 in a Bill Elliott 1985 Coors Light red car. Thunderbird, what? yeah, yeah. Gold rims. Oh, yeah, exactly like the race like, car, yeah. Like I, I looked in it, and it's got, like, roll bars and everything. I'm like, how has that, like, not gotten pulled over? <laughs> oh, man. Like, it's just motoring on down the highway. And me and my dad look at each other like... You see this, right? That is crazy. Interesting. That's one way to do it, I yeah, guess. Speaking of wraps and all that, favorite paint schemes of the Car of Tomorrow. All right. Number one. Number one. This is Jimmy Johnson 2009. This is the Lowe's car, but it's got the little red and black accents, yes. too. Yes. That is, I like, one of my all-time favorite cars ever. I remember seeing that. Is that one that they made... Did Chase have like a, yeah. a tribute to that car recently? Because I think yeah, is it, that's it right there. And that was that was a pretty cool paint scheme, yeah, yeah, for sure. Were you a Jimmy Johnson fan? Yes, I was Jimmy Johnson fanboy growing up. I like Burton too. Burton and Edwards, all the nice guys. Yeah, yeah, Jeff Burton was big on the safety for NASCAR. He was one of the guys who was a big proponent of that, and he he won a race that we talked about last week in our last podcast. At Martinsville in 2000, where they ran restrictor plates at New Hampshire because they'd had accidents there and it was getting pretty bad. And he led every lap. But yeah, he he, he did pretty well in that race. But that was pre-car of tomorrow. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I've got a couple paint schemes that I love. The black and silver Dale Jr. 88. back when The he was gray ghost hand. one? The gray ghost, yeah. That was that was an amazing paint scheme. I that was a tribute to uh, Buddy Baker, I believe, right? I think so. He yeah. did, did he do that twice? I can't remember if he did it when, with it mm -hmm. a different video. It was, I'm pretty sure it was like a, like exactly 10 year. Um, he did it in 08 and he did yeah, it in 18, 17. 17. Yeah. Like one of his last years. Yeah. I remember mm -hmm. that. Cause like I'm looking at the photo here and it's got the, the wing on it. I remember seeing that with, without the wing too. And speaking of wings, my all time favorite consistent that was on the track for a few years. Red Bull, Team Red Bull. We can't forget that they were in, in NASCAR. And it was like Scott Speed, Brian Vickers, and then it was just gone. Man, we had like this wave of, of back in the car tomorrow, you had all the alcohol sponsors, like all the hard liquor, like Jack Daniels, Crown Royal. They all came in with really sweet looking cars, like Jimmy McMurray's 26, I believe. Had like mm -hmm. the purple scheme. Yeah, the purple yep. paint scheme was the pretty sick scheme. for, looked like for a, Crown Royal. It looked like a Crown Royal bag, but on a race car. Yeah. And then, um, and then and they even had like some silver and black schemes there too. But then you had the energy drink boom with like Robbie Gordon's Speed Energy with those pinks and oranges and oh, stuff. Oh, I forgot about that. And then that. you had Red Bull because he came in and was like, yeah. well, if Red Bull's here, I'm going to be here. And then, and then Amp Energy obviously was big too. And then now those have kind of faded away and now we're back to, you know, kind of, you know, the, the sponsors that we have today. But I'm hoping like... I don't know. Is cannabis going to be the, the next wave of, of stuff? Yeah, on this, maybe that's the next the thing. The CBD car. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you never know. I bet. It, I bet you'll see stuff like that as yeah. we get going. So in 2007, that was the first time they ran this car, the car of tomorrow. 
Kyle Busch hated it. One issue they found in 2007 after the first race was they had put this energy-absorbing foam in the doors, which you've probably seen if one of those cars wrecked, like how the foam would just kind of like come out of the car and be everywhere. That, unfortunately, in the first race started melting due to a section of the tailpipe being underneath the door, and they didn't account for the heat shield there. It wasn't thick enough, so it made the drivers actually sick. Brian Vickers got second-degree burns on his feet after the first race at Bristol, and he, along with Denny Hamlin and Matt Kenseth, said they felt ill for days after that race due to what they believed to be smoke inhalation. Matt Kenseth said, I had some major problems last week. I shouldn't say this because I'm not sure on it, but I think there are two different foams for the door, and I think ours was toxic. I had to breathe that stuff all day, so that's a big concern for me. That stuff burning, I don't care what they say. Whenever you make something man-made like foam and all that stuff, and that stuff melts and burns, I know the fumes and smoke coming off that can't be good for you. They had similar problems at Martinsville the next time they raced this car. So NASCAR eventually fixed that. They found a smaller amount of foam to put in there, put in different heat shields. Robin Pemberton, who is NASCAR's vice president for competition, said they would not remove the foam completely because of the benefits it could provide during a crash. Jeff Burton, after two races in the car, said, quote, I believe this is a huge work in progress. We're definitely learning on the fly. Also, to just show you how different of a time it was, that quote was in the New York Times. So, jeez, <laughs> because the New York Times had a NASCAR writer back then. I don't, th- I don't know if they do now. It's wild, man. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they do now. <laughs> I, I don't know. Too busy talking about politics and all that that's, stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's slightly bigger things yeah, going on. I guess sure. that's okay. The other issue right out of the gate was the look, as we talked about. NASCAR wanted a heavier, easier to control car, so they added a huge front splitter, made the car taller and wider with the added weight. The cars were about as close to a spec series as you can get in NASCAR, and fans did not like that either along with the look, because the front of those cars, if you remember, they were all identical. Yeah. They're at they're the, all at the, stickers. They were all stickers, yes, yep. but they also, that bracketed splitter didn't allow for them to have, like, the different grills and things mm-hmm. you still see on the cars now, which they eventually did switch back to. So, that, I mean, these cars were almost identical manufacturer to manufacturer, or something very different than what NASCAR had been previously. NASCAR wanted to make this a more competitive car, And we'll get to that because it actually ended up being a fairly competitive car. But in the first two races out with it, Kyle Busch and Jimmy Johnson won races for Rick Hendrick and Jeff Gordon finished in the top three both times. So go figure like the best team was still the best team because they had the R&D to do that. Now, two of the early proponents of the car of tomorrow were Kyle Petty and Dale Earnhardt Jr., which shouldn't be a shock. Uh, Both of them sadly lost people very close to them in car accidents, and those accidents were part of the reason they prompted the car of tomorrow. But Dale Earnhardt Jr. said, it was really funny. I thought if you hit a guy, you'd spin him like normal, but when you hit him, it just propels them forward. It's kind of cool. I would have gotten spun out in the other car. Um, So these cars were heavier, and that actually led to the thing one of you mentioned. I think, Derek, you might have mentioned it. The tandem drafting. Raja, what did you think of the two-car drafts at Super Speedways with the car of tomorrow? When Jimmy won that first Dega race, that was really awesome. But I remember watching the second Daytona race that summer. I remember the last restart. Wally Dollenbach had talked about it, and uh, and everybody like back then, like as you know, like everybody like Dale Jr. I remember the last restart. Everybody got with their partners, and then Jr. was just kind of in seventh without a drafting partner and i was like oh man yeah. but i thought as a kid i was like oh that's that's kind of cool i guess like i didn't really 
like conceptualize kind of what it all meant. But it, it, I mean, it looked cool. What do you think of it now? If you go back and watch some of those old races, if you've watched them like on YouTube or wherever, do you do you still find it enjoyable? Or and that's there's no wrong answer here. I'm just I'm curious as to like if as a kid you maybe liked it or if now if your opinions changed. Man, I don't know. Like I guess as a driver now, I just wonder like how could you go a whole race while doing that like like races are like such a long period of time so to constantly be pushing like that for the entirety of the day because if you don't you're gonna be about to go a lap down because you're not really up to i guess full pace i like how it was now or or last year the year before where albeit it was kind of the the steroid package as i like to call it (laughs) but i liked it because it's like you could still like if you needed to go you could lock up and get a get away Mm -hmm. but you can't do it for 15 laps right. like you you'd still have your packed upness which is i guess what they want and then I, I i think that was like a good balance of it but i will say it is very cool like because you can kind of like push somebody out and then like do what harvick did a couple of times like just do that i appreciate that like that that's pretty smart i enjoyed the tandem racing i thought it was cool just the whole trevor bain winning the 500 like coming out of nowhere wood brothers getting a win and that was pretty cool to see that but I also like the fact that they could imagine a situation, Roger, where you could have like a dial with 15 or 10 drivers with their numbers and you just had a <laughs> dial. You could just switch, talk to one of your competitors and say, hey, uh, you want to lock up? Let's go. You want to go up to the front? I mean, it was a unique situation. But what would that look like? You know, and for what those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, NASCAR allowed drivers and teams to pick frequencies on their dash and they could have driver could have a switch to talk directly to the driver, his competitor. Because they said it was a safety thing, because if they're going to lock bumpers, they've got to be able to communicate. Oh, I didn't directly. realize they did that. So yeah, they actually put. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they had a sticker. I remember seeing a dial with like a forty-eight, an eighty-eight, a twenty-four, and it's like all the people oh, all the you, all your teammates. Like, yeah, well, yeah, but it was people you thought you'd work with. Yeah, so they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, like gave them up to seven or ten, and they thought, well, that's not right because you wouldn't because they always try to compare themselves to other sports, right? It's like, well, you wouldn't have two hockey players or two basketball players on separate teams working towards a common goal. But that's the way the tandem draft... I mean, it literally... If people didn't remember watching this, it was Talladega in 2008 was the first time Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick started doing this, and they were running a half a second faster than everybody else per lap. Like, just ridiculous. The effect of it from an aerodynamic standpoint is you take 500 horsepower, whatever was in these cars at the time, well, now you've got two of those cars, so it's more like a 1,000 horsepower... But you have one giant air car as far as the aerodynamics are concerned. So, of course, that's going to be faster than one car by itself. And that's we know about drafting and all that. But in this case, you could literally hit the bumper like you're saying, Raja, and stay stuck to it. Like you're talking for three hours, 500 miles right on someone's bumper, except for when you go into the pits or when there's a caution. I would assume that's got to be mentally taxing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's got to be one of the most difficult things that you could do as a driver. And yet all of them were doing it. And at first it was a big advantage until everyone started. And then it just became whose two car tandem was the best. And everybody had to figure out which one was great. It's but like an ongoing game of NASCAR tender almost. Yeah, it's it was like, like a NASCAR <laughs> key party. Everybody just throws their keys in the bin and figure out who they're going to go home with that night. That's terrible. That's terrible. I, Lord, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh-huh. Yeah, but well, you're talking about this giant car. With you know, you know, added weight and added uh, height and everything like that. I'm thinking this is NASCAR's basically the thick version. This is the how, thick how boy you, NASCAR. How do you like it, Bill France Jr.? I like it thick. <laughs> <laughs> like my NASCAR's <laughs> thick. We're okay. gonna get we're gonna get Raja in trouble with this. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Thick, thick boy NASCAR. 
Is that okay? Can we call it Thick Boy NASCAR? Is that all right? Yeah, with you sure. Right? Okay. Yeah. Sure, that works. Uh, uh, Roger's like, please edit this out. Please yeah. edit this out. <laughs> the 2008 season had the tandem drafting, which was different, that people weren't totally a fan of. Some people were, some people weren't. When we come back, we'll talk about one other factor from 2008 that likely contributed to fans' unrest regarding the car of tomorrow, right here on Stagger. Welcome back to Stagger. As we were talking about the car of tomorrow, in the year 2008, it was not very popular with fans. And then there was an event at Indianapolis that made it even less popular. That was the year yes. when the tire debacle happened, where they couldn't go more than 10 or 12 laps without the tires exploding or getting a flat and everybody had to pit. So that disaster happened for many reasons, which we will go into in some other episode, but one of the reasons they believe that happened is because the cars now had the higher center of gravity because mm. they were taller and they said that on a flat track with all the other components that happened too that helped murder these tires mm. but the the bigger heavier taller car with all the lateral forces that were on these tires in those corners that is one of the contributing factors so you got to remember like the, the fans at that race, you know, they lost. They're there watching this race, and every 10 laps, they're bringing them in for the pits. It was it was a disaster, right? No one liked it. Right. You couple that with the car looks weird. It's got this big fin people didn't like. Daytona now is going to be two-car drafting. And then the Brickyard has kind of been ruined. Like, can you see, Raja, how people started adding all that up? Even if some of that's not true or some of that wasn't totally fair, they just put all of it on this stupid new car that NASCAR made, it sucks. I can see it. And I think another thing too, like I guess about Indy in particular, a lot of people don't, I guess, know this, but that surface is, is, is extremely, extremely abrasive. And I don't, I don't think a lot of fans know that same Indy and the concrete tracks in general, yeah. like the, based on how like that's like the surface, like how that actually is, like it is extremely, extremely abrasive. Goodyear has to go, can't really go, I guess, as as soft that they want to go on tires because they'll cord and, yeah. and literally chunks will come out. So, but I think like what you had just said, JD, along with, with, I'm pretty sure there was like an economic issue that year, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, oh, you yeah. have that coupled with recession. the fact that in, in the actual real world the economy, yeah, there was a giant recession. So yeah. people were mad. Just mad in general. In general. Yeah. And then yeah. NASCAR fans are like, wait, I don't have as much money as I used to. I wasted a bunch of money going to that Brickyard race that sucked. I went to Talladega, and I saw two cars dominate the field for some weird drafting thing. NASCAR sucks. And then they just <laughs> – it's not its not totally fair, but you can understand how people get there. And it's, it's – And Junior wrecked with David Gillen. Oh, yeah, geez. right. <laughs> Um, and yeah, anytime Junior has a bad year, everybody's going to have a bad year. That's the way it kind of was, you know, at that much. time, as you yeah. know. Now, in 2008, there was one kind of shining oh. moment for the car of tomorrow when Michael McDowell wrecked the Texas, which we've all seen at this point, probably if you're a NASCAR fan. This was when he was going to turn one and his car kind of got loose and he tried to correct it and it caught a little too hard and went straight up into the wall. They estimate he was going about 185 miles an hour hit almost head on and then flipped over multiple times and 
if you've gone back and watched this video, Daryl Waltrip is on the call, and and you know when race car drivers know something's bad. Daryl Waltrip audibly gasps when this wreck. He just, oh my, like he is he's shocked by how violent this wreck is, and rightfully so. Everybody was, but Michael McDowell walks away from that accident, and that was where people said, "All right, this car looks weird. There's a lot of flaws to it, but it did save that guy's life, probably." Yeah. Like, I mean, or at least kept him from a severe injury at the very least. So that was one of the redeeming parts, as bad as that wreck was. It did show NASCAR that, okay, a lot of the changes we made from a safety standpoint, did they do actually work. And that's, that is a good thing, even though there were some problems with this car. So 2009, the cars started having a problem with safety again, um, but not in the way, I mean, they were keeping guys safe, but the problem was... The car started flipping over. Do you remember mm-hmm. more cars flipping over back than they than we uh-huh. see now? Yeah, the the Carl Edwards trying to block Brad Keselowski at Talladega in 2009 at the yeah. spring race. Car flipped over despite the roof flaps being deployed. Then in the fall Talladega race, the same thing happened to Ryan Newman. Then in early 2010 at Atlanta, Carl Edwards yeah. got his revenge on Brad Keselowski, hit him hard, and Brad's car flipped over. Jeez. All of these, despite the roof flaps being up, the roof flaps are meant to try to keep the car. Looks like it's it's like the flaps on a wing, right? When you go to land, it's trying to bring down the amount of lift that is operating on the car, which kind of is like a wing. They found, though, unfortunately, that rear wing of the car had a lot to do with why these cars were flipping over. It was doing mm-hmm. something funky with the arrow and making them more likely to flip. So, 2010 in Martinsville, a few weeks after that Atlanta wreck, they said, "We're done with the wing." Rear spoilers, here we go. So that only lasted a few years. Even though the car of tomorrow was around much longer, that part of it did go away fairly quickly. Only only a couple years. What do you remember about some of those wrecks, like with the fighting like Brad Kozlowski and Carl Edwards? Is there some of those things, those rivalries that you remembered that were like, like just taking a pause a minute from the safety? What what did you remember about those those incidents from watching as a fan? And, And kind of what were your thoughts about like, how those drivers handled those situations. Yeah, I mean, I remember like the retaliatory stuff. I, I still believe to this day that Jeff Burton didn't mean to wreck Jeff Burton on purpose. I don't know what the reason was, yeah. how that happened, but I still do not think Jeff Burton did that on purpose. But I remember like all that, that extracurricular activities. And I think subconsciously, I think through seeing all that, like I kind of realized like, I'm a non-confrontational person, so hopefully if I get to race, I don't I don't think I'll be on, on that type of stuff. That's Plus, <laughs> now, like we talked about, Derek, like I kind of, that stuff's expensive. Yeah. So yeah, that I, stuff's I expensive. <laughs> yeah. I would never intentionally crash somebody. Yeah. Ever. Oh, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. You can tell them that, have meet you in a room in iRacing, and you guys can sort it out there if you need to. Okay. <laughs> it's a little, little, little I cheaper. Ra- iRacing is like those stress rooms they have where you can just go in and take a baseball bat Race and hit stuff. like a vase. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, but it's iRacing. You there can you just go. tear up all your equipment all the time if you They're one of your partners, so maybe you could talk to iRacing about having like an iRacing rage room with drivers. Like I would watch that. Ooh, on Twitch. one that doesn't, because that would affect your driver rating. Well, right? no, but if they if they had like if a rage you got wrecked, room where you could, it's an invite only rage room where you yeah. hash the stuff out. And I mean, uh-huh. it'd be like you know NASCAR two thousand driving backwards at, 
Daycare. <laughs> I did that driving backwards on NASCAR 2011, man. Yeah. I was gonna say that's NASCAR. That's yeah. that's for NASCAR. Leave that in the NASCAR heat. Yeah, yeah. Come no, on, no. that's for NASCAR yeah, heat. That's not for... It's a simulator. It is not a video game. <laughs> we are on that side of the ship, uh, just to make sure everyone knows where we stand. That's exactly simu- right. It's a we, racing simulation. We support iRacing. Absolutely, it is fantastic tool. Story. Yeah. All right. So 2011, they redesigned the car some more. They got rid of the adjustable braces on the front splitter. And they allowed manufacturers to kind of put their own touches onto the nose to make it look like a production car again. So that was a big win for a lot of fans. And in 2011, the first and only win of Trevor Bain's career at Daytona. The first that was the first yeah. race after they did that. First that's when win. he won. Yeah. That was his yes first cup win. Sorry, well only cup win, but yeah, yeah first. Uh, True enough. Yeah, and that was that was memorable. So I think that had some saving grace. I mean, to me, that's what I remember the car tomorrow. We always think back fondly and make things better than they were. A lot of times it's a human tendency, but I look back at car tomorrow and that's one of my, you know, my highlights of that period. So I think it did have its good times for sure. One guy who had an interesting perspective on that is Alan Gustafson, who was the crew chief for the car's first race win at Bristol with Kyle Busch. He also was the crew chief for the final race win of the car of tomorrow in 2012, in November 18th, when Jeff Gordon won at Homestead. And he said this about the end of the car of tomorrow. He said, on one hand, it was very good to me. I was fortunate enough to win a lot of races with that car. But on the other hand, it felt like we just kind of tolerated it. (laughs) It wasn't pretty, but it was the hand we were dealt. Um, One thing that gets lost in the car of tomorrow discussion is how competitive these cars actually were. Ryan McGee from ESPN compiled some stats. The five full seasons that the car of tomorrow was driven there were at least 12 different winners in each of the 36 races per year. So you had at least a good differentiation of drivers in each year winning races. The last two years of the car of tomorrow, 33 different drivers went to victory lane in 72 races. So that's pretty good as well. In the 16 race slate of 2007, actually, if you go all the way back to then, 28 different drivers won in 196 races. So There were first-time winners. Guys who got their first win in that car were, like I said, Trevor Bain, Regan Smith, David Reagan, Marcus Ambrose, Paul Menard, David Rudiman, Juan Pablo Montoya, and some guy named Martin Truex Jr. got his first win in a car of tomorrow. (laughs) So, you know, it was a mixed bag. But overall, I think the safety improvements stuck with the next car, the Gen 6 car that we have now that's going to be going away for the Gen 7 car. But that's where this car of tomorrow truly shined. It was competitive. It did make the racing better, largely, and it kept drivers safe. And even though it didn't have the greatest looks to some of us, for others it did. Raja loved that car. He he has a car of tomorrow tattoo. Don't ask him where. You don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> right? You can confirm that, right? No, I'm terrified of Neil, so I'm gonna have to <laughs> All right. So that's a lot of history we threw at you, but give me yeah. your final thoughts kind of on uh, the car of tomorrow era. Where would you put all of that uh, in the context of maybe your fandom and history and what, what what do you think of when you think of car of tomorrow like now that we've gone through all that does it does it raise your opinion of the car of tomorrow more than you already was it definitely does when people talk about like their first racing memories again have the habit of making people feel old but when i think of car of tomorrow that's the one of the first things i i think about in relation to to racing like i even like 06 like just vaguely but I vividly remember, you know, playing with having that Jimmy Johnson car, having the National Guard Jeff Gordon diecast and the 
Kevin Harvey Pennzoil Flames. Like them cars are like synonymous in my brain from like when I first started or I first vividly remember racing. To me, I, I really still have a great appreciation for them. And now kind of for not only that, but for kind of the the progress that it made in terms of making making it safer for the drivers. Um, now I appreciate that in a different sense too, especially after, I guess, this year and I guess the trajectory of my career so far I mean, going to bigger and faster racetracks and understanding what it's, how important it is to make sure that, that I do what I'm supposed to make sure I'm not get hurt or I'm not, I don't get hurt. So to understand kind of where we've come from, it, it makes it feel a lot cooler as well. Thanks again to Raja Karuth for joining us at Raja Karuth underscore on Twitter. That's R-A-J-A-H-C-A-R-U-T-H underscore on Twitter. He's also on Twitch. He's on the track near you. Catch and running select Arcadates over the next few weeks. All the info is on his social or at rajakaruth.com. Next week, we're going to talk about what happens when the person holding the checkered flag waves it too early. Would you believe that one racing series just stopped the race right then and there? We'll tell you that story next week, right here on Stagger. <laughs>